Welcome to The Aggregate, hosted by Kinetic Ventures. This is a project based on the learnings from Startup DNA and the founder's journey. On this episode, we talk with Jennifer Williams, founder and CEO of Cuddle Clones. You will learn what it's like to go from actuary to running a multi-million dollar startup and even wanting to rescue donkeys. Don't miss this extremely talented woman. Talk about her amazing journey. Okay, well, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Jennifer Williams. I'm the co-founder and CEO of a company called Cuddle Clones. And our flagship product is a stuffed animal that looks just like your pet. So our customers upload their pictures of all their cute fur babies, and we make a stuffed animal that looks just like them. Uh, I'm actually from the Seattle area. I grew up in a small town, probably 3,000 people or so. Uh, Went to the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, and majored in math and business, and I became an actuary. So if you don't know what that is, it's a think about insurance and people behind the calculations of all the insurance rates and things. Uh, I actually worked on large pension plans for a number of years. Didn't really think about entrepreneurship. It wasn't a big thing in school either. You know, the word just really wasn't thrown around like it is today. Um, so then I ended up uh, different places, uh, New York, Jacksonville, Florida, Chicago for different jobs and things. And then had the chance to move down to Kentucky in 2008 and never thought I'd be there, but I love it. Uh, So I'm living outside Louisville now and enrolled in the entrepreneurship program, uh, MBA program at the University of Louisville. And that's where the entrepreneurship journey really began. So that's a super interesting story. I I think there's a couple of nuggets there. First off, you basically make stuffed animals for a living, and I don't think a lot of people, you're here talking to a venture capitalist, and that's probably not the first thing that they would be like, oh yeah, that sounds great, let's 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 fund that. So we'll unpack that maybe in a little bit, but I, I find your journey super interesting. I do know what an actuary is. Yeah. In my prior life, I sold life insurance, oh, yeah. and so I know all about the law of large numbers and how that works. Um but through all your journeys, when I think of actuaries, I think of the least entrepreneurial people on the planet. And so however you found yourself to Louisville, so take us through what's happening in your head when you decided to roll in the entrepreneurship program. I just don't understand that at all. <laughs> I had had a few ideas over the years. Um, but never really thought about starting them. I didn't know anyone that was an entrepreneur. Um, but what had happened was when I was an actuary, uh, one of the partners at one of the companies I was at, it was a smaller boutique consulting company, decided he was going to leave and start his own actuarial firm. And so I said, oh, well, that sounds fun. I, I think for me, it's I always like change and moving. Like I would love to move every year to a new apartment. Like I'm just kind of like that. Like I like changing things around. And so when he started his own company, I was probably, I want to say 27. He was like 35, something like that. I was like, oh, can I come? Like it just, it, I didn't even have to think about it. I was just like, well, that sounds fun. I want to do that. Uh, and so that was my first foray into owning a business. So I wasn't the owner. I did have some shares, but it was a great, I've always thought maybe I'd be a better number two because he would go get the clients. I would do the work, he'd review it and send it off. Like it was just this really neat process. And we made a bunch of money that year. 
career. I mean, cause when you're a consultant and now you don't have, you know, the company that you have to pay, like you're getting all the 400 to 600 bucks an hour, you know, as an actuary, you're like, Oh heck yeah. Um, so that was, it was just a good feeling. Um, we ended up with five employees, um, at one point, this was in Chicago. And then, um, my business partner actually said, Oh, well, he really wasn't interested in growing it anymore and wanted to actually backtrack and become a stay at home dad. And at that time I said, well, hmm, I don't know how to go get clients. I just didn't have a network. And so I was like, well, I really liked this concept though of like running a company. So I decided to go get my MBA. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't in Louisville. So I started off at Kellogg actually at Northwestern, uh, which was a very, very good school to get into. I wouldn't say they were like super into entrepreneurship. I think they had a few classes, but then in the middle of that, I had the chance to, well, the chance, the opportunity to move down to Kentucky. And I thought, well, okay. So I had to choose if I wanted to fly back up to Chicago every Saturday to finish that program. Or I just started researching stuff like, well, what does Louisville have? And they had a very specific entrepreneurship-focused MBA. And it was about half the money. <laughs> I was like, well, that sounds fun. So I started over on school and uh, enrolled there. And it was a wonderful program. I can't say enough things. Like it was, we had learned a lot. Um, and probably one of the best things we learned was how to present, like present to investors, present in front of crowds, you know succinctly explain your business in 30 seconds, all that kind of stuff. Um, very practical things as well as just growing the network. So did you start drinking bourbon as soon as you became, I hate bourbon still <laughs> to this day. I can't do it. Uh, I'm like everything else, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I try it every now and then. But. So take me from there to cuddle cleanse. Okay. So in the MBA program, our first semester, we had an opportunity discovery class. And this is where they force you to write down all your ideas. At the end of the semester, you have to turn in your journal, you know, and most people really hadn't had any ideas before coming into the program. So it was like a new way of thinking. But once you become an entrepreneur, and all of you entrepreneurs know this, you can't stop coming up with ideas, <laughs> you know, like you got to keep your pen and paper next to your bed or your phone ideas. I mean, I have all my ideas listed in my phone. Um, and so we kind of, you start getting into that mentality of recognizing problems and opportunities and whatnot. I'd already had the idea to make a stuffed animal of your pet. Uh, I just really hadn't ever described it fully to anyone. And when I Googled it, you know, the other thing you do when you have an idea is Google it and see, Oh, well, does this exist? Uh, so I Googled stuffed animal of my pet or something. And the only thing I, so it didn't really exist. The only thing I found was this artist lady in, I think she was either in California or Arizona making movie props for like 800 bucks. So, you know, if a movie, I always use um, Anchorman when they kick Baxter over the railing. <laughs> like, well, you don't, you're not going to kick a real dog over the railing. So somebody needs to make that prop that looks like a real animal. Um, and it needs to be flexible. You know, it's not like taxidermy. So anyway, uh, Kind of put that idea in the back of my mind, but it ended up in my idea journal along with a bunch of other stuff. And we had to present to the class what we thought our top two ideas were. And so my number one idea was, and I already had the name. I don't even know why I came up with that name or how, uh, just cuddle clones. I guess I'm a big fan of alliteration. Uh, presented that to my class and it was two slides. 
that I presented. It was a picture of my great Dane Rufus, who was a Harlequin. So he was white with black patches. He had a brown eye and a blue eye. And then a picture of like a beaker, like a, like a science beaker. (laughs) And then a picture of a great Dane stuffed animal. That was like the one slide that kind of said, here's the idea. And it was more like sciencey. Like I wasn't, when I thought of cuddle clones, you know, it, it was so different from what it morphed into in terms of the emotional side of pet ownership. Like I wasn't even necessarily thinking that it could be a tool for people to grieve, um, which actually did become kind of my problem slide later. Like I wasn't actually solving a problem in my head when I came up with the idea. I just thought it would be really neat to have a stuffed animal just like Rufus because there was no way I'd be able to find that in a store. And especially a high quality stuffed animal, let alone looks like him. Uh, so the class idea, there were a few people that kind of liked, so then we had groups that kind of turned into teams and that's where I met my co-founder. I was in my class. His name's Adam Green. And we were really good. He he basically had told me like, Oh, as soon as I heard that idea, like I wanted to work on that project. And so that's always good. And so we've been together ever since, uh, he was a good match because he had a lot of marketing and digital marketing expertise. And I, had, you know, more back then, you know, I hadn't really done a lot of work, but in in terms of the other topics of entrepreneurship, but I had definitely the analytical mind, sort of how operations should work logically. And so it was a good match in the beginning. If you know, you are looking for a co-founder that has a separate set of skills than you do. Uh, So it became our project and that, that involved anything over the two years of an industry analysis, you know, and so we analyzed stuffed animal manufacturing as well as the pet industry, because it was sort of two, like our marketing efforts were going to go toward the pet industry, but manufacturing efforts were in stuffed animal, toy manufacturing, all that, uh, business plan. Of course, you know, that's wrong. The first time you hit save, we thought at least for this short preferred pets that we might be able to use dye sublimation to like print like the pattern of the pet onto flat plush and then sew it together. Uh, And all this was theoretical. Like nobody, none of us knew and no one else in probably all of Kentucky knew how to stuff animals that looked like your pet. So all this was theoretical through the school years. Um, But we were fortunate, um, toward the end of the program to enter into these business plan competitions that MBA programs have. They're kind of like Shark Tank, but they're sort of limited to just the college universe. Um, And you typically win cash and it's non-dilutive. And I think at the end we had won a little over $50,000. And so school ended in 2011 and Adam and I were pretty much the only ones on the team left that, really wanted to like kind of try this out. The other words were just like, well, I've got my own life, you know, I'm going to go back and do my own thing. And so, you know, we're looking at each other like, well, do you know how to make a stuffed animal? I'm like, nope. Do you? Nope. (laughs) So that's how we kind of started, but we had 50 grand to figure it out. You want me to keep going? No. So I want to, I want to put this, I want to put, I think it's important (laughs) to somehow frame up how successful your company is today okay. and then I'll probably go you know back again and, and we can talk about because I have some specific things on what happened after the pitch competitions but I don't know if you want to use exact numbers or frame it up for people listening how much money will you guys have have made will you make this year or over the light in in actual revenue dollars you're 
you know, I think you're in a stratosphere that most flyover founders or small business owners um, never get to. And I think this also goes to show how much people love their pets. So why don't you just frame how well your company's doing today? Sure. Um, I don't know the exact lifetime revenue, but I think it's a little over $30 million. Um, but we've had a really good trajectory over the last few years. Um, we've been doubling uh, for the most part. So 2018 was around $3 million in revenue. And I think our very first year we did 100000 or something uh, in that year. And the clones were really not that great. <laughs> um, so yeah, three million or so in 2018. Uh, that rose to about six and a half million in 19. And then in 2020, there's a little bit of noise with masks uh, because they actually we started selling masks with your pet on it um, and other general sort of dog and cat masks, and those brought in about two million. Um, but the total for us was around eleven and a half million in 2020. So nine and a half or so of core business growth from six and a half the year before. And you'll get to what this year? Oh, well, we'll see. Uh, we've budgeted some more growth. Um, we're looking at maybe 12 to 17 million. Uh, it, typically our best season is in holiday and you never quite know what that will be like uh, because we're advertising throughout the year. So that's pretty consistent. Like we know what our advertising dollars are going to bring in, but holiday is a whole crazy thing. Like you don't know how much organic you're going to get, how much, you know, people learned about you throughout the year and are just waiting until the holiday to order. And so that's what, that's the range we're looking at. So by my math, if you have a good year this year, that's going to put your lifetime revenue over 40 million. So you're a, who knew? Yeah. (laughs) Female founder, female CEO, forty million lifetime revenue still going, seventeen million in current revenue, with eighty to hundred percent annual year growth over growth. I mean, I would say in in at least in you know Kentucky land, that's that's Hall of Fame material. Ooh, all right. So I want to talk a little bit about too. Let's put that in perspective. To date, um, number of rounds, how much? Have you raised 10 million, 20 million? How, how many? Well, talk, let's talk about fundraising a little bit. Sure. Um, the original fundraise was $300,000 back in 2013. Uh, this was friends, family, I'll call it a seed round, even though we call it Series A in the legal docs. Um, friends, family, a few angels from Kentucky, a few angels outside Kentucky. Uh, I did have a couple outside. There's one in New York that's pretty good. Um, and that basically took us all the way to 2017. (laughs) Just that. So, I mean, we were, I guess we were pretty scrappy. And now the manufacturing is interesting because we didn't need a lot of machinery, you know, or assets that we had to go buy. We, We needed sewing machines and we needed people. And the beauty of a custom product is people kind of prepay for it, you know. So you have money in the door, and then you can make the product. So that that's nice. Um, in 2017, we got an SBA loan, uh, so no equity, but we did uh, get a $500,000 SBA loan to kind of help um, just smooth. It's kind of a bridge um, to get us like before the holiday season for that year. Uh, and then we did not raise any more money uh, until late. 2019 
and we raised um, 500. Okay. Now that is part. Uh, crowdfunding is probably a whole nother topic that you could spend a whole podcast episode on. We did do a crowdfunding campaign in the middle of 18. Um, we ended up paying that out actually. So those people actually got a hundred percent return on their money after like six months or so. Um, but it wasn't a good, it didn't end up being a very good race for us. We thought we could get a couple million. We only got a couple hundred thousand. So maybe we didn't market it well enough. Um, but it was also sort of the beginning of equity crowdfunding and, you know, a lot of our upcoming institutional investors weren't quite excited about, you know, 400 people being on the cap table. Um, and so when we converted from an LLC to a C corp, it actually triggered a payout of those folks. And so that's when I, they're not there. I think. Yeah. 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 Um, so that was late 19, 500 K. Um, and then in 2020, we raised another 300. So you're kind of blowing my mind here. So. <laughs> I know, like I'm not talking in millions. I'm talking in a few hundred here and there. So no, we did a lot with a little, but we never, we didn't feel cash strapped. I guess it was a really good idea from the beginning because we didn't worry about making payroll. But but then again, Adam and I worked for no salary for the first couple of years. Um, you know, and, and both of us still kind of had our jobs for the first couple of years. So I was at PwC. He was at Humana. Um, and then I quit first to do cuddle plans, but then I, you know, emailed my entire network. I'm like, Hey, I do math. I do financial models, you know, give me some side work. So I kind of did side work for, you know, at my own pace for, um, a year or so. I get called every once in a while now still. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I'll do that. Um, and then Adam quit, I think in 2013 or 14, we didn't even hire our first employee until maybe 2014. Um, and Adam and I reviewed pictures of every cuddle plume for like the first two years. Just, we were obsessed with getting the product right. Like it, and it is, if you guys look at our products now, I mean, they're, we're very, very good at what we do. Um, and they are all handmade. Um, but most of our good techniques on color and wrinkles and whatnot is sort of after the base pet is made. Like we do a lot of airbrushing effects, um, and stitching, you know, to make the wrinkles on a pug and, and whatnot. Um, but it was kind of like listening to like Brian Chesky with Airbnb, right? Like, so he was like all like do everything manually and be obsessed with it until you can't anymore and you have to start automating. Um, and you know, they would go visit hosts and things in New York and I like his story. Um, so I guess we were pretty frugal. I mean, that's one thing that is nice about fiber country. It doesn't cost a lot for expenses. I mean, we had a little tiny office in downtown Louisville in the Starks building for like $400 a month. I mean, it was cheap. And we didn't, you know, we had to build a website. Really, that first 300 grand was building the website and then starting our workshop in China. So just one thing for the listeners. We, we don't actually use a third party to manufacture our products. We own the factory or the workshop uh, in China. So we have full control over manufacturing over quality over hiring firing the employees uh so it's nice to have that nowadays um you know it was kind of a an accident that we never found a third party that wanted to make one 
stuffed animal at a time. They thought we were crazy and that it'd be too expensive. Um, and it is expensive. It's not, you know, we can't make these for $5 like some of our customers would like. Um, but so we hired a, a guy there to run the workshop uh, in 2000. There were a couple of people sort of in the beginning, five or six employees, and then it grew to 13. And then in 2015, we had a viral period um, where we were on BuzzFeed and um, gizmodo.com was like the first publisher of this article of like, hey, you can get a stuffed animal of your pet. And uh, so that was a good year um, in terms of growth for us. Uh, it's good that it happened in February because we, <laughs> the wait time went to like eight months or something after, like normal was eight weeks for a product. It went to eight months. We were able to kind of fix our problems by Christmas of that year. So it's good. The timing kind of worked out of the problems that, you know, are good to have like, Oh, way too many orders and not enough people to make them. So, so by my count including, cause I think it's a funding mechanism, uh, called the side hustle where you start out, you know, at your current job before you make the leap. Yeah. Right? Kind of bootstrapping. Model, yeah. Bootstrapping yeah. model, friends and family, SBA loan, crowdfunding, and then a small institutional round. So it's five different ways you know, talk, talk to that a little bit because I, I feel like all these, the majority of early stage founders that, you know, come across our desk, they're unaware or unwilling to, it's kind of like they want the optics of a traditional angel pre-seed or a seed, and then they want to roll into that. So do you think, you know, I guess what I'm asking is, if if you do it again, do you think you'll you'll do a bunch of different styles of bringing capital into the company, or would you rather do it? No, I want to go a venture capital route in the future, and then I'd like you to touch on because I really don't know. As a as a, as, do you think it was harder or easier or the same? Um, being a female CEO founder in charge of raising and bringing the capital, you know, if Adam was in charge of the paid advertising, bringing the revenue, you're in charge of bringing the capital. What did that, what did that feel like? So I know that's a lot, but I'll let you unpack that. Yeah. I'll start with all the different ways. There's even a couple different ways we've um, kind of brought money in the door as well. So there's these revenue based financing uh, financial tools you can use. Um, we used ClearBank. Uh, for a tranche and then we used um, PayPal working capital and we've got you know enough money coming in the door they just kind of hook to your um, order history and then they tell you like within two minutes I mean, it's a very easy way to get funding if you have money coming in the door <laughs> um, to and it will say hey you're eligible for 300 grand and the fee is 10,000 and then you basically pay it back as more revenue comes in, like 7% of your day sales goes back to PayPal until you've gotten that tranche paid off. And those were actually very useful. Um, and we just needed a little bit um, fast. Um, so I love all those tools. I, I'm, I'm going to go look for the deal. Like I don't need to do a traditional stack of fundraising. I'm just going to be like, well, who's going to give me the most for the least amount of cost? <laughs> Um, and now that I know, I mean, I didn't necessarily know about all these ways. Um, crowdfunding, I was always familiar with just from, we did a really early crowdfunding campaign in 2012, just for non-equity, but just to, um, you know, introduce our product. We only raised $5,000, but it was like way when Indiegogo was 
almost brand new. Um, so we already kind of knew about the concept, but then when the SEC laws changed or whatever, and you could do equity, then we're like, oh, well, maybe we should try that. So, you know, I'm willing to try everything. Um, it's very hard for entrepreneurs to get bank loans. Um, I guess SBA looked at, I mean, I don't even think we were that profitable when we got the SBA loan, but, um, you know, definitely make relationships with bankers. Don't just, you know, apply online at some big bank and assume you're going to get something. Like, definitely make relationships with bankers. I mean, even though the, you know, the industry is kind of stale and there's definitely new banks coming out, like we use Brex um, and some other sort of online banks. But relationships with bankers are good. Uh, and then just looking up different ways of funding. Uh, and maybe if you have you know, you don't have revenue coming in the door, you might have to go the more traditional route of somebody who's going to invest in a seed round with you at zero. You know? um, so then as far as raising money, uh, I want to say it was relatively easy that first 300 um, because, you know, we were UofL, University of Louisville, sorry for all the people who don't know what UofL is. Um they were very good at, you know, writing articles about the ideas coming out of the MBA program. Um, we attended this thing called Venture Connectors every month where it was a luncheon for entrepreneurs, investors, service providers to kind of get together and network. And we found a couple of our investors through that. Um, and it was just nice that they were able to take a chance on us because, as you said, stuffed animals of your pet doesn't resonate exactly with like a unicorn billion dollar idea, you know? Um, and in some ways it was a little weird. This will get to the female thing. If I told people that's what we were doing, they would say, Oh, well, I have one exact example of a guy that's like, Oh, are you making those like out of your basement or your garage? I was like, no, I'm not sewing these. Like what? WTF man. Cause I'm a girl. You think I'm actually making, because I know that if Adam, like a guy, I'm, I'm you dying. Laugh, go for I, it. I'm dying. He's, he's laughing I, over there, Brad. Is. <laughs> I think his vision of you is like some old maid. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and oh, that's hilarious. So if, if any other guy had said, "Yeah, we're founding this company where we make stuffed animals of your pet," they're not going to ask him if he's selling them. So that was just a funny example. Um, I don't know the answer to if you know I've gotten less money or more money um none of the funds that we've gotten money from are specifically for females except I guess one of your little funds right um cherub female founders cherub female okay. minorities yes. yeah um so I haven't necessarily had to go that route yet where I'm like oh I'm gonna go apply for all these female founders or funds um i will say it was a little hard because we did try to raise money in kind of between 2019 2020 we brought an outside ceo in for a little while um that was interesting that's probably a whole other episode as well um adam and i are definitely operators and we were very detailed and so we thought maybe bringing in an outside person would help with the bigger picture and scaling and fundraising um, and that didn't you know, that brought in a few dollars, like at the end of 19 is, is kind of what um, he was part of. But uh, so when I stepped back into CEO, I did raise some money on um, a bigger vision, but I don't necessarily think I got a lot of buy-in because I think a lot of people say, well, you make stuffed animals. And so they put you in this, um, you know, sort of silo. of, Well, how can you grow that, you know, the core business 
Whereas I was kind of all over in the terms of vision and no, I want to build something really big in the pet industry and stuff. Animals was just sort of, you know, my little shotgun strategy at first. Um, so it's hard to say whether it was the ideas, the vision, the, Hey, you need to concentrate on your core business and focus on that versus me being a female or, or anything. It's hard to say. It's been interesting watching you close slash from a distance. I mean, we're 90 miles away or, or whatever. Super proud. Uh, Freaking honored to be a part of the round. I'm honored to see something or our software saw something in a company that other people just couldn't see with their, with their normal minds. And, um, you know, we're anxious to see what happens. So why don't, why don't you just talk a little, like what's happening this year? What's, what's going on with the company and, and you know, where you, where you think you'll, what do you think you'll do with it? Yeah. Um, so COVID last year, I'll just pause for last year. It was interesting because we were getting very scared in March and April um, of, Oh, what's this going to mean? Uh, we were fortunate because the pet industry is pretty much, you know, resistant to all sorts of things. Um, and way more people adopted pets during COVID, which was good. Um, when the mask sort of idea hit, we said, Oh, well, let's get those up and running. So, you know, we thought, Hey, let's, we're very nimble in that we thought about masks on April 5th and by April 11th, they were up on our site and being sold. Um, and we rode the nice wave through, um, we were able to actually advertise a little bit, uh, before Facebook and other companies kind of took off mask advertising specifically. Um, so that was nice. But at the same time, we said, well, let's start to focus on how we can become more profitable. Um, in, in some entrepreneur terms, that's like, oh, how do we get boring now <laughs> in terms of cost savings and things like that? I mean, it really wasn't on our radar before. You know, we were really focused on the top line, like, hey, let's grow this. Let's, you know. Um, hire more people. We actually kind of went a little bit opposite in 2020. We weren't, uh, we didn't have to lay off anyone, which is very good, but we didn't really hire any new people. And then we started to look at, well, where's the savings? Um, you know, we used to send cuddle clones. We still do. We're about to change, but we send them in huge boxes that are branded. They're white. They say cuddle clones on them. Um, and there's a lot of wasted space in those boxes. And so, we looked at, well, what if we send the clones in poly bags, for instance? And so that alone can save $5 a unit. And that's actually a lot of money when you multiply that times 60,000 units in a year. And so when you start to do those exercises, you know, you don't necessarily think in your mind, well, that's not a big deal, two bucks, you know, whatever. But as you're scaling and making more and more in the number of units, that's a big number. Um, you know, if your EBITDA is only 400 grand and you can put another 200 grand into EBITDA, that's, that's amazing. So we've done a little bit more of a shift now to, Hey, how can we become profitable? I, it, we've been at it 10 years. I think that, um, Adam and I probably have a little bit of founder fatigue going on. Um, I think that maybe it would be a good time to sort of focus on profitability and maybe try to make ourselves attractive for a sale. There was always this question of like, how big could this get? And we could never answer it. We're like, we don't know really the market for custom stuffed animals of your pets. And we do have other products and things. Um, and actually, the pajamas are doing quite well this year. If you, if you want pajamas with your pet on it, cuddleclones.com. Uh, you know, people need their day pajamas for COVID and their night pajamas. <laughs> you know, everybody's just wearing pajamas. But um, 
I, I think that, you know, if we can find a partner and that would be a buyer that could really help us scale to the next level, that would be the best type. Like, I don't think we're in a position right now to, for maybe PE firms, you know, cause we don't have steady EBITDA that they can just come in, swoop in, you know, put a little money toward it. I think that we really need a strategic partner to make our company just reachable to other groups of people and awareness. And we still have an awareness problem, even though we're doing fine. If you ask a hundred people, Hey, did you know you can get a stuffed animal of your pet? Like they don't even, they don't even know the concept exists, let alone that, Hey, if a couple of is doing it, um, maybe one or two people might know. Um, and you know, 60% of people are pet owners. So it's, it's a big deal. So I think that that's what we'll probably look to do. Um, me personally, you know, I've got my other ideas in my journal, you know, that I would might, might want to pursue. And, and so we'll see how it goes. So you've been at this 10 years. And you, I've heard this on the other seven podcasts, okay. some same language, some, but you said the word founder fatigue. So I think founders know this, maybe not new founders, but I think for some outsiders, they look in and, or they, they read the newspaper articles and you see the two happy founders and they got a billion dollar valuation <laughs> or they, they got the valuation cause they raised a hundred million dollars. And that's all we read about on our, our Google newsfeed. Are you saying that that's not what being a founder feels like, or that's not how you feel right now? <laughs> well, the stigma is that, you know, Oh, well, everyone's going to be a billion dollar idea. Like when you start it, you know, that's what you've got in your mind. And so when it doesn't happen, like, like I would even go to say, it's bad if you don't fail immediately because what you do is you stretch out this timeline of like, well, when are we ever going to get to a billion dollars? You know, and then it's 10 years later, you're like, well, I guess never, <laughs> you know, in our case, maybe not, but, um, you know, failing might also, might be a blessing because then you don't waste your time on a company that if you do have a unicorn in your mind, like if you, if you really want to build a billion dollar company, and you end up with only a $10 million company in, in some entrepreneurs minds that feels like failure. And so I think the fatigue part comes in when like, you know, if, if we were, I mean, I guess we have been doubling, but <laughs> you know, can we keep that up? Probably not. You know, at some point it's going to kind of level off. Um, you know, it's not like we're doubling revenue and, or EBITDA's, you know, 30% of revenue. You know, we've been kind of in and out of profitability over the last few years. And so you just start to think like, well, is this, you know, do I really want to, when a company this size, if you don't sell it, then you're just like, okay, do I want to run this until I'm 70 and start to maybe take dividends out? You know, I think some entrepreneurs just like, well, that sounds great. Other ones are just like, no, that's not really quite what I had in mind. Like, I want to be, the, the visionary that, you know, is hiring 10 people a day, you know, and growing these huge companies. And I, I can't say, I mean, I don't know exactly which, I think I lean toward that one. Um, I don't necessarily think I have to be at a billion dollars, but I think more than 10 would be good. Like, you know, 50 to 100, 500 million. I feel like I'd be in a good space if I was like in that kind of range. So yeah, you just get tired of doing this, you know, and dealing with all the stuff that comes with being an entrepreneur you know, all the responsibility of it. And I wouldn't say we had any like super hard, like I feel bad for 
the people who really do need to make the hard decisions, like layoffs. Oh my gosh, I can't eat my peanut butter jelly sandwich because I need to like put it toward payroll, you know? And we were fortunate that we didn't have to do that, but maybe at the same time, we were very good operators. Like we paid attention all day long to our numbers. Like we were not going to run out because we're like, whoops, (laughs) we ran out of money. Uh, So let's just say fast forward, I don't know, whenever that time frame is, and you sell this company and put some money in in your pocket, you're going to take a vacation, you're going to go work and take a timeout nap at a big company, or you're immediately going to go do your billion dollar idea. (laughs) Well, uh, I've thought about all of those things. There's a, a popcorn factory, like about 10 minutes from my house. I'm like, maybe I'll just go work for the popcorn factory, you know? Um, but I think for me, I get so bored. Like I can't really vacation or relax. I mean, it's not in my DNA. Um, so I love, I just love working. I love building things. I love working on things. I'm teaching myself iOS Swift programming right now, you know, for fun at night. Cause I want to build some apps like myself. <laughs> um, but I think for me, and you know, you might get into, do you start talking about the strategist stuff on this podcast or only the crossover one? Oh, far away. Oh, okay. Well, I think for me, and, and um, I took the predictive index mm-hmm. recently and back in 2008, and it really hasn't changed much. Uh, I need variety. And I think it goes back to my personality that I just like new places. I like new apartments. I like new things. Um, and so I would probably like the idea of working at a venture studio or on one or opening one or who knows what. Um, but working on several ideas at once would be great. I'm totally a zero to one person in terms of I want to build stuff from scratch. I don't want to go buy companies and fix them, put them back. I want to build things. Um, I don't know what podcast I was listening to, but it was something somebody quoted uh, you know, competition is for losers. <laughs> I don't know who that was, but um, I like the idea of building things that don't exist really, or at least, you know, different takes on a thing that oh, this is new and novel and just, dis- I guess disruptive is the word, but I'm not really necessarily saying like, Oh, I want to make a better mousetrap. I want to make like, Oh, this thing over here that traps this other animal, <laughs> you know? Uh, so that would probably interest me. Um, I don't know what it will look like if we exit, if, you know, a buyer would want us to stay on board. So, you know, I'm totally open to that as well. I don't need to do this immediately, but it is something that, that I'm interested in doing. Yeah, I know when, you know, we funded, you went through our online Wendell process and Wendell identified you as a strategist. Right, cool. Strategists are notorious for um, taking risks because you're an enterpriser and experimenting. Um so I I I guess I think it's fascinating, and we're pretty sure we don't have the data yet, but that um, venture capital firms love funding strategists in general, even if they don't know that that's what they're doing. Their behavior is funding the strategist profiles, okay. and so so we find that fascinating, and I'm sure you'll. Uh, find a venture studio not too far from Louisville. Uh, I know there's uh, High Alpha is a really I just good one. Visited High Alpha, yeah, in Indy, um, two weeks ago. Good. So, yeah. so I'm on, uh, the, I'm on the list. I'm going out to Pioneer Square Labs in okay. June too good. in uh, Seattle. So. Uh, last thing. So, what's your pet life like these days? My pet life? Yeah. Ooh, it's kind of fun. Um, 
we moved out to 20 acres in July, my husband and I. And we don't have any human children, but we have a lot of animal children. Uh, so we have three dogs. We used to have my little princess, Izzy. She's a chihuahua mix. Um, we have a pit bull German shepherd mix named Winnie. And then our newest is a, a rehome situation that came to us. She's a blue healer named Maggie. Uh, so a lot of girls, my husband, you know, and then we have six chickens that are all females. So uh, that's nice. And then just last weekend, we got done preparing the barn, the old barn that's on there and the pasture for goats and mini donkeys. So that's nice. That's awesome. Yeah. So we... I'm on the hunt for rescues. Donkey rescues is my next thing. I got to figure that out. Donkey rescues. Okay, so, so if this podcast can do anything, that's what we're going to get you. That's your homework. This Find is, me a donkey rescue. <laughs> well, look, I appreciate you coming and being on today. There's yeah. some amazing nuggets from a, a very successful founder that yes. has taken a slightly different road, not only to get here, but through the whole process. So uh, we'd love to catch up with you and, um, you know, as maybe a successful sale happens or you start a new venture. We'd love to, you come back and tell us how you're doing. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks. See ya. Thank you for listening to the aggregate hosted by kinetic ventures. Kinetic ventures is an early stage VC that is disrupting venture capital by replacing the pitch with an automated data driven approach. What's the benefit? A completely unbiased investment process that allows funders to spend more time building their business. To learn more about Kinetic or apply for funding, please visit us at www.kinetic.ventures.